Well, greetings, brethren. We're here today to celebrate the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, 31 A.D., marked the beginning of God's Spirit, begotten New Testament Church of God. Today we live in a time when what the church consists of and what, in a sense, its location and, and how it's organized has become a question to many people. In your mind, when we use the word church, how do you understand that? Do you understand that as a person, let's say, in this or that organization who has God's spirit, who keeps God's Sabbath, perhaps his holy days, and has a basic understanding of the truth? Or do you understand it perhaps as we did 20 or 30 years ago, that it was one body, that it was a group of people that met together and worked together physically and also spiritually. They had God's spirit, but they focused upon the concept of being one. I'd like to address that today because I think it's very important in the times in which we live. It's also very important that our understanding reflects God's Word. That the way we think, how we understand what God is doing, actually directly springs from the Bible. It is certainly true that there are things that have happened among God's people in the last decade or two, that have totally changed the thinking of many who keep God's Sabbath. So I'd like to address it from the Scripture. I'm not going to have answers for every question, but I do think it's very important that our thinking, our understanding is based on God's Word, not our human reasoning or our thoughts or our judgment, but rather we accept what God says and reveals to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul addressed the issue of division. And he asked the question, it was in a local congregation in Corinth. He asked the question because people were following various personalities. And one of the personalities was the apostle himself. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Now Paul's response to that was, Is Christ divided? Now, he does not actually answer his question, but I think all of us understand from the Scripture, the answer to that is absolutely not. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, because of the problem, Paul actually went on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Now, they were not saying that. That was an extreme. But he was concerned that people had gone to this type of measure 
that that was causing division. It's also interesting because it reveals to us in a way how he wrote and perhaps how God inspired him. The Bible says the word of God is God breathed, that he went on to correct himself. He said, yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And so rather than go back and edit what he had written, and perhaps, you know, we today would simply do that. We'd go back and correct it. He did not. He simply went on to explain. And so it may give us an insight into both how he wrote, but also the fact that it was inspired of God. The Bible is very plain and straightforward about division. So I'd like to start by looking at the beginning of the church and what Jesus Christ said, because it helps us have a bigger picture and a right foundation to the topic that I'm addressing today. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 16, Jesus Christ revealed to his servants the beginning of the church of God. And in Matthew chapter 16, he'd asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They responded, but he had introduced the question, and it's quite obvious when you read on, that he had a purpose. He asked then the disciples, verse 15 of Matthew chapter 16, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That knowledge, that understanding of truly knowing Jesus Christ and having that understanding that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, it's not of our own wisdom, it's not of our insight humanly, it is, in fact, something that God has revealed to us. It's by God opening our mind and giving us an understanding that perhaps others, in many cases, may not share. Now, when Christ said this to him, he also went on to say, verse 18, And I also say to you, says, You are Peter. And we have always correctly pointed out in God's church that the word is Petros. The word Petros means a small stone or a pebble. Sometimes in doing that, we tend to downplay the reality that Jesus Christ said to Peter, you are a part of the building of the church of God. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 20, you can keep your finger, please, in Matthew. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's very plainly stated, Ephesians 2, verse 20, says, Having been built, that is the church, those whom God called, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Christ had revealed to Peter that he was going to be a part of the foundation of what Jesus Christ was going to do. Now, that's an incredible blessing. And it's certainly very important that we do not downplay it, even though we understand very clearly that the cornerstone, or as we read on here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, says, and on this rock. Now, that's a different word. In the Greek, that's Petra. And that has reference to a larger rock, a a foundational stone that we find in Ephesians and also in other parts of the Scripture are referred to as cornerstones. Now, exactly what is a cornerstone? Well, it's a part of a term that's used in the building of a structure. A cornerstone is what you measure the building by. You lay that stone, and then from that stone, they measured the rest of the building. Today, we don't actually use a cornerstone. It may actually be a stake in the ground or a a marker that cannot be moved. It's made very secure, and then we measure from that. And whether it's a a skyscraper or if it's simply a a small building, perhaps a store, your lawnmower and a little outbuilding, you want it to stand square. You want it to be level, the floor to be level. And so you mark whether it be on a stake or a piece of pipe, something that is fixed that will not move, a mark, and you measure by it. And that measurement, starting at the foundation, going all the way up throughout the entire building, is the measurement by which that building is built. And Christ is the cornerstone of the church of God. Peter and the apostles They were a part of that foundation. They were stones within the foundation of what God was doing. And Christ revealed that to Peter. He goes on to say then, I will build my church. Christ makes it very plain. It's his church that he would build it. The gates of Hades, that is the grave, shall not prevail against it. And although we occasionally see, when we look back in history, bits and pieces of those we find who kept the Sabbath or had a certain level of understanding, there are, in fact, many gaps that we do not know and see clearly the history of God's church. But, brethren, as we begin to understand and identify from the Scripture what the church represents, please keep it in mind. Christ said, the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. That there would, in fact, be a body of people throughout that history from this time forward, they are the church of God. Now, with this, Christ goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we can understand that as keys that unlock understanding or give access. We also can understand that as keys, such as the key of David, where there's certain authority or responsibility. As we go on, I'd like to show you, I think really from the context within the Scripture, Christ was talking about the responsibility of providing leadership and judgment within the church of God. 
But let's first read what it says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's powerful authority. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, when we read this and we try to understand it, it's important that we notice that only a chapter and a half later, Christ continues, and we find in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, in chapter 18, this very phrase is repeated. And this time, let's notice it, Matthew 18, verse 18, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Christ repeated the latter part of the phrase when he said, I will give you keys of the kingdom. Now, in what context was this statement made? Well, it was in Matthew 18, and it's in context of what he explained starting in verse 15. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so Jesus gave instruction that when someone sins against you, Now, it's certainly not wrong to use this principle to try to deal with a minor offense. Say there's a personality conflict or someone said something and it's not clearly communicated and so there's a misunderstanding and hurt feelings. It's certainly not wrong to look at this and say, well, this is the principle of how we should try to resolve such issues. We should go to our brother. But to expand that, let's say a personality conflict, and then bring in other witnesses because you can't resolve it, brethren, that is not what it's talking about. Because we're talking about sin or an offense that is of the nature, if the individual cannot come to resolution or repentance, they were to be disfellowshipped. We do not in God's church, nor does the Bible give us instruction or authority to disfellowship someone because there is a misunderstanding or there's some type of offense or difficulty of a personality nature. The Bible tells us very plainly someone is to be removed from the fellowship for a major gross immorality or breaking of God's laws for causing division or heresy. And so what Christ is addressing here is a very serious situation. And we know from other passages in the Bible, such as the First Corinthians chapter 5, that when someone was put out of the church, their spiritual life was at stake. And so we read on, as we read this, it says, verse 17, because you go to your brother, if he doesn't hear, you bring in witnesses. Why? Because it's a serious issue, not a personality conflict or a minor misunderstanding. We're talking about a serious issue says, if he will not heed, take with you one or two more. And their purpose, is, their purpose is to be a witness so that everything could be established. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Does that mean it's announced to church? 
Now, we've never understood it in that manner, and the reason in part is because what Christ continues to say in the context of his guidance. It says, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, in the scripture, we have examples, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the apostle Paul disfellowshipped. Now, how did he do that? Was it by the vote or the approval of the church as a whole? No, it was by his authority as a minister of Jesus Christ. So Christ goes on to say, Then tell it to the church, Assuredly, I say to you, So in the context in which this is used, it's actually used in the context of fulfilling the responsibility that God's servants had to lead and direct the church of God and to shepherd the flock that God called. So he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Is that unrelated, brethren? No, it's absolutely related to the responsibility because any minister who acts in good faith is going to ask God for guidance to give him an insight and an understanding of what needs to be done. Because it's a very serious thing to remove someone from the fellowship of the church of God. But Jesus assured them that if you ask, and again, please notice it's not an independent action of one. It's an action, it says, of two of you. We read then in verse 20, it says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name or by my authority, I am there in the midst of them. And so Christ made it very clear because his spirit was given to them to guide, to lead them, that judgments that would be made if they went to the Father and asked for guidance, that he would guide them. So God gave authority within the church of God. Now, when we read the scripture, we find, and I'll not spend too much time on this, brethren, the name of the church that was used, that is the name that the brethren used and the servants of God used in addressing the church was simply the church of God. That's mentioned by title 12 times, in the New Testament. And, of course, it's based on the statement of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17, when Jesus, in prayer prior to his crucifixion, he literally prayed to the Father in John 17. And in verse 11, I'll read the latter portion of the verse. It says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Now, why did he say that? That they may be one as we are. There's an emphasis, if you read through John 17, it was the prayer 
and desire of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we be one, that we seek unity, that we strive to be one with Christ and one with the Father. And it was his assurance that we would, in fact, be one. We find the name is then used, Church of God, and I'll only use a couple of examples, just perhaps one here, and well, it's a couple, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, Acts 20, verse 28, as the Apostle Paul met with and was actually uh, going to depart from uh the area that he had served, that is, he met with the Ephesian elders and he exhorted them. He told them in verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. That they had a responsibility both to oversee and to shepherd their church, it says, which he has purchased with his own blood. We also find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we were in this chapter earlier, but at the very beginning of it, as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, if you go through the scripture, you take a concordance or you take a Bible program, you can very quickly identify the 12 places where repeatedly God's servants referred to the church by name as the church of God. That's very simple to do. It's 12 times. Now, that term, church of God, derives itself from the Greek ecclesia. The word ecclesia means an assembly. When we had supplied to the church, we understand from other scriptures in the Bible, such as in Romans, where it says, unless the spirit of Christ is in you, you are none of his. But it's speaking of an assembly of people. In other words, they, they come together. There's an assembly and they have God's spirit. And so that's why I said in the beginning that in 31 A.D., Jesus Christ, literally, it was the beginning of the church of a spirit-begotten group of people. But they are an assembly. They're not a divided group. They're not a separated group. They are, by very title and use in the language of the Greek uh, the Greek language, ecclesia, they are an assembly. Now, that phrase is used in different ways, but in every case it has to do with a group of people coming together for a common purpose, for a common cause. The other phrase that's used in the Bible, and one that we often use, is the term body of Christ. And in recent years, I've heard people define the body as people who have God's spirit, who are in this group, or perhaps over here independently, but they keep God's Sabbath, they keep God's holy days, but they're not a part of necessarily any specific group. 
And we use that in reference to trying to define what is the body of Christ. Is that biblically accurate? Is that actually how the Bible uses the term body of Christ? If you use a concordance or you take a Bible program and you look up the term translated into English, whether in King James or New King James, body of Christ, it appears four times. And we're going to look at all four of those. Now, the word body that's used in that phrase is summa, S-O-M-A. If you read a commentary or a book that explains the Greek language a little more thoroughly, you will find that whether it's in a commentary, if it touches on the subject in the particular verses, or if it happens to be a language reference, that they generally will explain that the word actually has to do with the physical body. Not speaking of the spirit within the body, because see, that same word is used at times for a corpse. When the body is no longer filled with spirit, but is now dead. And of course, the Bible tells us that upon death, the spirit returns to God in terms of human life to God who gave it. In terms of animal life, it returns to the ground. But the word is used both of humans, also of animals, and it's used referencing someone who's alive, but has reference to their physical body, or in death as reference to their corpse. So to try to expand and take the word body of Christ and apply it in some manner to the spirit That is not the intent or the meaning of the word summa. Now, it also applies to other bodies, such as a body of stars. It simply has to do with a physical body. But let's notice from the scripture the four times that this phrase, body of Christ, is used. And brethren, I think it's very important that we look at it carefully because our thoughts and our definition of what that body is should spring from this book. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 4, we find the first reference in the New Testament that uses the phrase body of Christ. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you should, or we should bear fruit to God. Now, Paul was explaining our relationship to God's law, and that We are to keep God's law, but we have been freed from the penalty through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of breaking the law of God. Now, he had expounded this in much more detail as he explained baptism. And you can read that in Romans chapter 6. I'll read just a couple verses to make very clear the connection. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, Therefore, 
we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he's expounding upon that in chapter 7 and showing that we've entered into a new covenant, a new relationship with Jesus Christ and with God our Father. So when we read this passage and it says body of Christ, it's actually speaking of Jesus Christ crucified. We're speaking of his corpse. We're speaking of the fact that he died for our sins. He paid the penalty of our sins, that he was in the grave for three days and three nights. Jesus Christ himself said later in the book of Revelation, as he identified himself, he said, I am he who is alive, but was dead. And now am alive forevermore. And so the reference here is physically to his actual physical corpse. It's very clear it's a physical reference. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's the second place in the New Testament where you find the phrase body of Christ or summa of Christ. In verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Again, it has very specific reference to Jesus Christ crucified, but also, brethren, in this case, because the Bible tells us by his stripes or by the grief and suffering of his crucifixion, God offers us healing, comfort, compassion and mercy. But again, we're, talk, we're talking of, the Bible's very specifically speaking of, the physical things that Jesus Christ suffered, and then, of course, the giving of his very life as our Lord and Savior. In this particular case, as we observe this, what do we actually remember? Well, it's one chapter later, the Apostle Paul expounds the keeping of God's Passover. In verse 26 of chapter 11, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So again, we're very specifically speaking of a body, a physical body, not a spiritual body. We're talking about a physical body in this case, the body of our Lord and Savior. The next place this is found is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're just continuing right on a couple of chapters later. Paul uses this same phrase, but in this occasion, it has specific reference to the church of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. He says to those, that is the church of God at Corinth, says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Now, how does Paul describe this body? 
Because in this particular chapter, he spends quite a bit of time talking about the nature of that body. And he describes in part how it's assembled, in other words, how that assembly came together, and for what purpose. And it's very important that in our thinking that we think and we understand what God's revealed to us. It shapes our our life as a Christian. It shapes our conduct and our thinking if we think in the manner of God's revelation. Brethren, if we humanly reason because we don't clearly see or understand what God's doing at a particular time, and we look at it and we sort of figure out by our human reasoning or our best understanding, trying to put together the pieces, and we depart from this clear and the very clear statements of the Scripture, we're moving off track. And so what is described here? Well, let's notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'd ask you to read all of it. I think it's very important that you would and think about it because it's really very clear. So I'm going to hit a few of the highlights and emphasize each section. But the first thing that he deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that God has given diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now, those gifts range from differences of ministries, diversities of activities, The manifestation of the Spirit, it says, is given, in verse 7, to each one for the profit of all. So it's not done haphazardly. God has done so very clearly with a purpose, so that each one profits from how God pours out or gives his Spirit to his people, that is, his church, at any given time. God never deviates from this purpose. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11 But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he, that is, Christ, wills. Now, he doesn't leave the explanation there. He goes on and is very specific about, and he talks about the body. And he relates that to something all of us know, because it is, in fact, the image that he describes of our body, the human body, the physical body. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. But then notice the relationship. They're not separate from each other. 
They're not a part. No, they're one body. And Christ is working in their presence. For if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, is it therefore not of the body? Now, how do those two members of the body function? Well, they function together. In fact, we have a phrase we use, eye-hand coordination. That when you see something and your body responds to it, that the better the coordination, the more adept you are at whatever skill, whether it's a very simple thing or something very complex, that we talk of eye-hand coordination. They work together. He goes on to say, in even more of an extreme, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Because that's another aspect of how our body reacts, our coordination. We hear something. When we hear something, we are attracted to it, to look. They work together. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? Now, Paul's making it very plain. He's using our body and how it functions. It functions as one unit. It functions all the members attached, all of them working together. It says, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleases. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So he's explaining and helping us to understand the brethren and the variety we see in the church of God, that we all function and work together. He goes on then to expound, brethren, a part of the purpose for what he has done. He said, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Why? Well, because they function together. They depend upon each other. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. Now, why did God do that? What was his purpose? That there should be no schism in the body. You know, as you read through this, you realize how contrary the concept is, is that there's a member over here and there's someone over there. But we don't necessarily know who they are. We have no relationship with them. We're not working together. Or someone declares himself to be independent. But yet, because they keep God's Sabbath, they keep his holy days, therefore they, that is sort of this scattered body. That is not what the scriptures say. Now, why have some people come to that approach or that thinking? Well, brethren, part of that is simply we don't fully see what God is doing at this present time. Is God sorting his people? Is he testing or trying us? He may well indeed be. 
It's preparing us for what lies ahead, perhaps. I don't have an answer. I don't see a clear answer to that. But what I do know, and the reason for this sermon, is not good as members of the living church of God, of a unit that should be working and is working together, brethren, if we think outside of the definitions that God has given to us and what he is doing. If we think inside of that and we take the responsibility that it gives to us, because, see, it does give us responsibility. When you're attached, you have, in a sense, a responsibility. When you're detached, you are removed from that action or interaction, that responsibility that God wants each of us as a part of the body of Christ to fulfill. Notice as we read on here, it makes it very plain that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. We do that because we have a central nervous system. You stub your toe, you feel it. If you were to cut off that member, or it would be separate and not attached, you would not feel it. You may not even know that it happened. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's in that context, it goes on to say, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. See, God placed structure within that body. Just as the Bible tells us in a human body, we have a head. In fact, in the church, you know, the Bible plainly says, Christ is the head. But God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. And, brother, not everyone fulfills each of those responsibilities. Remember, verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Now, some have reason that, well, because it's a gift to God's Spirit, there's not actually a structure of authority. But as you read, if you continue reading on, which I'll not do here in, in any Length, I would point out to you that the Apostle Paul goes on then to address the subject of the speaking in tongues. That was a gift of God's Spirit. But he also then made it very clear as the Apostle that if someone had that gift and there was not someone present to interpret, they were to be quiet. He also made it very clear that there were not to be more than two or three prophets speak Lest other, and let the others judge. In other words, it was not to become confusion. Now, how did he have that authority? Well, because he had the responsibility of, notice what it says, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, it's not just a list, it's a numerical list. And it is one that represents responsibility or structure 
that God has placed within his church. Now, where's the fourth place that the body of Christ, that term, is used? Well, let's notice in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's used here in verse 12. It speaks of the church, it says, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Again, what's the context? Well, it starts in verse 1. It says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The emphasis is very clear. It goes on and speaks of the role of Jesus Christ then. And it says in verse 10, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself. It's interesting. That, that phrase is not used too often in the Bible. You'll find it, for instance, in Revelation 19 at the return of Jesus Christ. It says he himself, and speaking of leading the saints, but he's the one who's going to lead in vengeance and take charge. Here it says, and it's emphasized, when you use that phrase, you're limiting no one else, just he himself, that is, in this case, Jesus Christ, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, what's his purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith. We're not necessarily, we don't always start in unity. God brings someone in, we grow in understanding. And brethren, as we continue to grow, we have a goal, says unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, or it could be translated as mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's where God wants us to be, that we literally mature into the very stature of our Lord and Savior. In that process, it says, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. Now, how how are people tossed to and fro in terms of the church of God? Well, one of those areas very plainly defined here says, carried about with every wind of doctrine. So they're carried about by wind, not by the actual doctrine, not by the truth of God, but by things that people murmur and criticism. Now, what's the nature of that? This is what Christ says. This is what he revealed. This is what God's Holy Spirit inspired his servant to write and share with us. 
by the trickery of men. Not just disagreement, but at times just simply a refusal to agree or to ignore certain scriptures. You know, the last 15, 20 years, I've been in situations where I've actually had people tell me, you know, that they don't really want to know what the Bible says on a certain subject. Or I've had people tell me after expressing an opinion, and I remember someone I knew and respected. I did not know them well, but I had respect for them because I had a good reputation. But they were expounding back in 1995 or 1996 certain ideas, and I listened, and it just struck me that, no, there's a very plain and clear passage in the Bible that expresses a totally different opinion. And so I asked the individual, I said, let me read something. And so I read it, and it was very clear, it was very straightforward, and I was surprised by the response. Because I, I sort of thought, well, you know, th- well, let me think about it or read this or I'll study this further. But the response was, yeah, but. <laughs> and, and, of course, then the individual changed the subject, did not want to discuss it further, and then I heard later was still teaching the same ideas. You know, brother, we yield ourselves to God's word. And when we do, we study it, we search it. But please understand that we live in a time that Paul is speaking of when people have carried others about, and they've not done so in good faith. They've done it through trickery, notice, and in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. They've sought out their arguments. They've tried to reason around. And we need to be aware of that. Now, how do we deal with that? Well, verse 15 but speaking the truth in love. Not with an agenda or a purpose, but rather to simply strive to understand what does God say? What does his word say? What is in the Bible? And to study it thoroughly. And we have wonderful tools today. We have easy access to concordance or Bible programs. And you can very quickly assemble all the scriptures and then study them on any given topic. And it's important that we do that. But our approach to the truth is not to use it as a club or to somehow put anyone down. It says, to speak the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together. See, he's the chief cornerstone. The whole body is joined and knit together. It's measured by the example of Jesus Christ. It says the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. That's why it's so important that we understand this topic as God reveals it to us. Because, brethren, when we do, we realize that the Bible very plainly states We have responsibility. We have a responsibility toward our brethren. We have a responsibility toward the work of God, the church of God. There's, in fact, authority and structure that God has placed within his body, and it comes directly from Jesus Christ, he himself. And he is the living head. When we start to think or we confuse our thoughts in some other manner, Brethren, we remove ourselves, we begin to depart from what God wants accomplished in our life. Let me read it again. 
It says, and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You know, sometimes our share may simply be to attend church. Now, I don't think that's the only share we have, but if you read in the book of Hebrews, it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Well, by coming together and by fellowshipping or networking together, we encourage one another. We strengthen one another. We, as the scripture says, provoke one another through love to good works. Now, we also, all of us can be praying for each other, but many times we have opportunities to do other things, supporting and helping and, in fact, doing our share, the opportunity God's given us within his church. But it starts based on an understanding and a concept. This is what the church is. This is what the Bible means when it says body of Christ. Now, who's the head? I'll just read one passage. Notice here in Colossians, and it's repeated, frankly, in many ways in different manners, but it very plainly says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body. But let's notice, if you read the entire context of the statement, you realize it's talking about all the responsibility and authority that the Father has given to Christ. In verse 14, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. When you read that, can you fathom that Jesus Christ went off on vacation here 10, 15 years ago? Or was he not indeed very alive, very intense, very involved? As this church was formed in its beginning, and people stood for specific reason and purpose. Because if we all believed and thought the same things with other groups, we would be together, but we do not. We have different priorities. So today we find there are different people who keep God's Sabbath. We don't have really fellowship or interact with them. They keep God's holy days. They have a good deal of understanding that we share. But are there two churches, three churches? That's not what is described in the Bible. What's described in the Bible is one. Now, It's interesting because God gives us an insight. He actually describes the church and and the situation at the very end time, that is about three and a half years before the return of Christ, he describes the nature of the church of God. 
And what's interesting, brethren, it actually mirrors what we see today. When you think about and you read what it says, and we're going to, it mirrors the issue that has caused confusion, has caused difficulty. And it's not here to, to elevate or put anybody above another. That's not the purpose of the sermon. It starts because God revealed. He understands. He gave us a certain insight. And perhaps in part, it started because of our own heart and the priorities. God sees the heart. He understands, brethren, the inner workings of each of our thoughts and our what motivates and, and carries us day to day in life. In Revelation 12, we read of the time, in verse 10, Revelation chapter 12, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. So speaking of that time that we know the Bible speaks of, which I think when we look around the world and what it says here, it lies yet into the future when Satan is going to be cast down to this earth. And it's just a very shortly before, just a few years before the return of our Lord and Savior as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we read that when this happens, verse 13, well, let's read verse 12. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. There's really nowhere you escape. Satan comes down with great wrath. And his anger is not just toward as we read on, the church of God. He's angry. You would not want to be in the same room or near him. And that's what God says here. Whoa! For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. It's also interesting the scripture reveals to us here that Satan has a specific focus first. And it's on what the Bible calls the woman. And it's not plural, it's singular. Woman. It's the church of God. It's the woman who gave birth to the male child. Verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. So God intervened. He gave and supplied protection. A bird spreads its wings to protect. It also spreads its wings literally to fly or to move. And so as we read this, we know God's intervening. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. In God's church, we speak, and it's an entirely different subject, we speak of a place of safety. That phrase, brethren, does not come um, of ourselves humanly. That's the phrase that the Bible uses, to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So God separates and protects her. 
So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And whether those are armies or some type of physical, actual, you know, intervention in some way of, of trying to literally sweep away God's people and destroy them, you know, we tend to feel from other passages and a symbolism that is probably literally of men. But regardless, what's clear is Satan tries to destroy God's church and God protects. The earth helped the woman. The earth opened his mouth, swallowed up the flood, which the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. So God protected. And God literally put her in her place where she is shielded. Now what happens? And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now the word offspring actually comes from the Greek sperma. It talked about that which issues. You know, I have children. They literally are the issue of my body and that of my wife. There is a relationship. It's not as if there's no relationship. They're my children. And it uses the phrase here, the rest of her offspring, her sperma. There's a relationship. You know, Mr. Meredith has mentioned that we have a relationship with people who obey God, who keep his commandments, who obey his holy days, who have an understanding, and we do. But notice, these people are not in and we're not a part of the woman. Please also notice how they're described. It says, with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God. It doesn't say they don't keep them or they just know about them. It doesn't say that. It says they keep them. Keeping them means they keep God's Sabbath day. It also means they keep God's holy days. Those are God's statues. The Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. And have, it's interesting how it says this, it says they have, you can compare in verse 11, where it speaks to the woman, where it says by the word of their, there's a personal relationship or identity with the testimony. But here it says they possess or they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Does that, in fact, not paint the picture of what we see today? You know, from my perspective, it does. Because I personally very strongly believe that God is working in this body. And we're striving to do his work. And we're striving to preach the entire understanding that God has given us of his word. Not a part of it or emphasize some aspect, the entirety of it. And that we're striving, brethren, to live and understand what it says. And in every way, we're trying to get back on the track of those things that God revealed to us through his servant, Mr. Armstrong, and that we came to understand whether then or even through this work to continue to be faithful to God. But what we read here is of a woman, one, and offspring. And the indication is more than one. And that's what we see. 
Now, we also know, and I'll not get into it from other parts of the Bible, God loves and he's going to work with those that the Scripture reveals to us who go through this time of tribulation, who become the object of the wrath of Satan. But my reason for addressing this subject, brethren, is for today. It's so that your understanding and how you think in terms of your relationship in the church of God is not confused, that it is not somehow muddled by the fact that we don't clearly see everything that God's doing at this present time among various people. What we do see and what we do have, brethren, in the living church of God is an incredible opportunity to work together, to do good, to strive to build a work, and to prepare for the coming of our Lord and Savior. That we together working together, that we acknowledge we have responsibility, that we're a body, and that we react both in support and also in help to one another. And if we have some other vision of what the church is, if we think of ourselves in some other manner, and we don't see that physical relationship that the Bible describes, and that God's Spirit's working in us. Because see, part of the reasoning is that, well, God, to be God's servants, you have to have God's Spirit. That's absolutely true. There's no question about that. But when the Bible describes the church, it describes the body, the physical body, that Jesus Christ is working through at any given time in history. And he makes it very plain that the gates of Hades, or the grave, would not prevail against the work that Jesus Christ is doing in preparing his children and his family for his kingdom. And so my purpose, and I hope you take it to heart, go back over these scriptures and think about the church of God. Think about, in fact, the opportunity that God has given us. And brethren, it's so very important that we think in terms and concepts of the scripture that we look within the Bible to form our thinking, within God's word, to form the parameters of our conduct and action. And in this particular case, this is very, very important. As the Bible clearly describes, the body of Jesus Christ, it's one body. Each member has a share. Each member should have the same care and strive to have the same care one for another. And brethren, this each member should work together to support as each joint, each part of it does its share, supporting one another as Jesus Christ leads the church of God. So this day, the day of Pentecost, 31 AD, was when that body started because it was when God poured out his Holy Spirit. And brethren, as we go forward, let's consider and think about God's word, and let his word guide our thinking, guide our understanding, and those things that we do not understand that are not clear, God will make those clear to us as we go forward. But what I've explained to you and went through today, brethren, it comes from this book. And it's very plain. It's very straightforward. We need to embrace it, live by it, and let it guide and control our thinking and our conduct.